but usually we pray for a local church, and we believe that we are teammates with our local uh, fellow churches in our community, and if this is uh, a, a visit that you have with us this morning, and it, maybe it's one that you just say, oh, this isn't the place for us, as this may be your uh, only visit here, hear from us that we're cheering for you to find a place to land, to be part of a people, to know and be known by a people. So I encourage you in that venture. If you uh, would like more information about who we are as a church, you can visit that little table on the way out. Or you might be able to talk to people around you and, and get to know them, and we can connect you with some information about who we are. Um, probably the best thing to do would be to just visit with us over a series of weeks and kind of uh, consider the meal that we're taking part of and how we eat together, how we dine together. We are going to dine this morning. We're dining on God's Word in Job. And home base for us is, is in chapter 42, but I don't want you to turn there just yet. If you want to turn somewhere and kind of be ready, you can turn to Job chapter 4. Job chapter 4. I'd like to give you a little bit of a map for the morning. I think it will, it will help you that it doesn't sneak up on you later. I'm doing something a little bit out of, um, out of sync with my typical sermon this morning in that home base for us is probably going to be about two-thirds of the way into the sermon. So when you get there, don't think, oh, this was all intro and this is about to go on forever. That's not going to happen. I think it's going to be, um, I think it's hopefully well-placed in a, a situation, in a, a, a timing and in a context where you understand why it's where it is. And I hope that it kind of sneaks up on you what God might do with that. There's some main characters in Job. I think the, the, the place to start to kind of acquaint us with the story, uh, reacquaint us with the story, is just to consider our main characters. Job is obviously the main character, the main, main guy. He is the finest son of the East, he's described in the first chapter. Uh, there's no one on earth like him, God says about Job. He says that he's blameless and upright, that he fears the Lord and turns away from evil. Uh, Job is a, a God-fearing, God-loving man that loves his family. He's got... Quite a large family. He's got seven sons and three daughters. And apparently they're actually pretty close to one another. They get together uh, every time. Apparently one of the sons has a birthday. I don't know why they leave the daughters out. That's kind of not cool. But maybe it was a cultural thing. Uh, maybe, maybe it did happen for the daughters somehow. But at least it seems as if they got together on the birthdays of the sons. And all the sons and daughters got together and fellowshiped and had a time of... Uh, Fellowship and, and fun together. And, God, and, and Job was so cool about his role as, and so conscious about this. He was so mindful of his kids that when they got together, that if for some reason they had unknowingly sinned against God, he made sacrifices on their behalf. I mean, that's the kind of dad that he is, um, the kind of worshiper that he is. That's the kind of family that they have, a close-knit family that celebrated birthdays together and looks like they really enjoyed each other just from the brief window that we have. So some characters we've met, Job, sons and daughters. Uh, there's some servants. We don't know exactly how many servants. There's a lot of servants probably. And herds, uh, quite a large herd. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. Daniel made the point. I don't know. They need some males in there. I don't know how they're going to you know, get any more donkeys. But apparently female donkeys are she donkeys actually <laughs> is what, the, what the, some, one of the versions says is, is cool to have, I guess. Okay, so Job is minding his own business, all right? He's just tending to his, his, uh, his herds. He's tending to his servants. He's tending to his family. Uh, he's, he's, uh, in, he, he's what we might call a micro-king of a micro-kingdom in ancient Edom. Okay, so it would have been in a really small kingdom. Um, and so Job is minding his own business while some new characters that we haven't discussed just yet are going to have some life-altering meetings. Not altering their lives, but altering 
Job's life, without Job even being present, without Job even being invited, without Job even having knowledge of the meetings, the sons of God present before the Lord twice in chapters 1 and 2. And when the sons of God present before the Lord, Satan is among them. And in these two meetings, it's decided that Satan will rain down all manner of heartache and havoc on Job. And that will be with God's permission. Next come the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans. Part of that havoc and heartache that's rained down are the, the, the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans raid Job's kingdom. They kill his servants, all that aren't killed by fire in a moment. They take his herds and then add in this new character, fire, burns, falls from heaven to burn up the sheep and some more servants. And then another character is a wind that comes from four cardinal directions at the same time to fold the house that his sons and daughters are in, gathered for a celebration, in on top of them to crush all of them. So we got Job, we've got his sons and his daughters, and they've perished. We've got servants and herds, we've got... Um, the Chaldeans, we've got the Sabaeans, we've got fire, we've got wind. We can add in now Job's wife. Job's wife comes into the picture after Job is covered with boils from head to foot. She encourages Job to do exactly what Satan said he would do when he lost everything. She encourages Job to curse God and die. Next come some friends, three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. We don't know exactly who these guys were. Most people, I guess the scholars believe that they were probably like dukes, maybe, if Job is a kingdom, or a king over a kingdom, that they were sort of like dukes in his kingdom. And we don't, we don't know that for sure. What we do know is that they're described here as friends. The story calls Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar... Friends, and the better part of this book is spent in dialogue between these three friends and Job. I want you to visualize for a moment, if you can, Job's just sitting in ashes. Okay, he's got boils all over his body. He's, he's lost everything. I mean, he is grieving. He's got a potsherd where he's scraping his boils just to make them feel better. This guy's really, really in a bad way, and he's got three friends that surround him, talking with him, trying to reason with him, while Job cries Godward. Job laments Godward. In Job chapter 30, Job says, God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. Contextually in the chapter, it's like he's saying, I'm, I've become the king of dust and ashes. I used to be a king over a kingdom, and now I sit in dust and ashes. He says, I cry to you, God, for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. This guy is broken and devastated, having lost everything. His three friends is who I want to spend most of our time with this morning. We're just going to consider what his three friends had to say to him. It's important that we make sense of their message to him, sort of uh, synthesized together, sort of the big picture message, so that we can make sense of what happens in chapter 42. And it's going to make all the difference in the world. Eliphaz was likely the oldest 
among the three. He seems to be the spokesperson. He's addressed over there in chapter 42 directly on behalf of the other friends. He seems to be the guy that is maybe the oldest and maybe the wisest. Job, or uh, Eliphaz speaks to Job in chapter 4. After Job has sat silent for seven days, all his friends sat silent for seven days, and then Job laments in chapter 3, and then in chapter 4, the first words spoken by a friend come in chapter 4. Let's look at what's said here by Eliphaz. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, Job, you have instructed many and you've strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling and you have made firm the feeble knees. This is an old ancient way of buttering someone up. Okay, it looks a lot like buttering someone up right now. When you want to give somebody some criticism, you give them some praise first to kind of soften it. So he's giving him a little bit of praise here. Job, you've offered a lot of good counsel to a lot of people over the days and ages. But now it's come to you. These difficult times have come to you, and you are impatient, and it touches you, and you are dismayed. And then he goes appealing to his God and the nature of his God. He says, is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope. And listen to what he says about God next. He says, remember, or this is what he says about just life in general. He's going to say some things about God here in a moment. He says, remember who that was innocent ever perished or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God, they perish and by the blast of his anger, they are consumed. I want us to really capture what he's saying there. Remember who that was innocent ever perished. Now, I don't know where Eliphaz has lived his life, under what rock he's hidden, where he's never seen anyone innocent struggle or perish. But that's the mindset that he has. When have you ever seen the innocent perish? When have you ever seen the upright cut off Job? The message he's given to Job right here is, Job, you're not innocent. These things are happening to you because there's some sort of sin behind these calamities. You've done something to deserve this. Either your sin or your children's sin, probably both. What's happening to you is, has to be due to your guilt because good things happen to good people and bad things happen to good people, or bad things happen to bad people is the essence of the message. So, well, Job, you do the math. If bad things are happening to you, then it must be you've done something because all who plow iniquity reap the same. Those who sow iniquity perish by the blast of an angry God is the message from Eliphaz. And here's the essence of it. You're going to hear this refrain from each of his friends. God gives people their due. God gives people their due. That's the message from Eliphaz. Let's see what else he has to say. Let's pick up in verse 12. This is an account of really what you might call a visit from the boogeyman, a a visit from a ghost. It's like a real weird little visit. This ghostly figure visits Eliphaz. And I actually have in my my Bible written beside this brief visit, boo, like a really scary moment. This guy's really scared. All right, so let's see what happens. Now, a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it amid thoughts from visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men. He said, I'm just dreaming and snoozing. Dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. That's where I had boo. 
Man, it's scary. He says, a hair, hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence, and then I heard a voice. And this is what the Spirit said to Eliphaz. He says, can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants, he, that being God, puts no trust. And his angels, he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like a moth. The spirit, this thing comes to Eliphaz. And Eliphaz says, this, this thing came to me, Job. And he, he told me, he said, can mortal man be in the right before God? Can you possibly for a moment think for a second, Job, that you don't somehow deserve this? Can man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants, he puts no trust. That's what Eliphaz says about our God. That's what he says about Job's God. Even in his servants, he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. Man, he sounds kind of like a curmudgeon, doesn't he? He sounds like, ooh, like a tough guy to work for, right? This guy's never happy. He charges his angels with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth, they're broken to pieces. Job, you're guilty of something. And God is just crushing you because that's what he does. God gives people their due. All right. That's Eliphaz's message. At least the initial message. We'll see what develops. This message from Eliphaz with his friends then continues like rounds in a wrestling match. There are three rounds where each of them tag in and then tag out. Eliphaz first, then Bildad, then Zophar. You just see him, okay? Eliphaz, all right, you're done, Eliphaz. Okay, tag your buddy there. Your buddy comes in, and Job is still staying in the ring. He's by himself. He's got nobody to tag out with. He sits in the ring just getting pummeled by these guys. Next up comes Bildad. There's chapter after chapter of these rounds, all the way through chapter 31. Next comes in chapter 8, Bildad. He says, does God pervert justice? Listen to the message. Just listen. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, Job, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Let me just encourage you, if you know a friend, a, an acquaintance, a workmate that's lost a child, this is not the kind of thing that you want to tell them. That's not the kind of words that you want to encourage them with. That they, They've just fallen into the hand of their own transgression. It must have been sin that resulted in this wind that folded in the four corners of this house because God gives people their due. That's Bildad's message. In chapter 11, Zophar, he tags in. Okay, he's next. He says, Job, you say my doctrine is pure. Job, you're saying that you're in the right here. You're saying your doctrine is pure. You're saying that you're clean in God's eyes. Know this, that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. You've lost your family, you've lost your, your kingdom, you've lost your health. And guess what, Job? You actually deserve worse because God gives people their due. 
That's the message from the friend so far. In chapter 15, time for Eliphaz to tag back in for round two. He says, God, put no, God puts no trust in his holy ones. Listen, is this the kind of God that we, listen, that we follow, that we love? Listen to what these guys had to say about God. He says, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water, God gives people their due, Job. Time for Bildad to tag back in. In chapter 18, Bildad says, Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out and the flame of his fire does not shine. This is you, Job, is what this guy Bildad is saying to Job. The light of the wicked is put out and the flame of his fire does not shine. His strong steps are shortened. He's cast into the net by his own feet. A trap seizes him by the heel. Terrors frighten him on every side. Calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the part of his skin. As Job sits and scrapes his boils with potsherds. It's a strong encouragement from your friends. Bildad says the firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He is torn from the tent in which he trusted. He's thrust from light into darkness. Such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. Man, that's the message from Bildad here in this second round. We're doing sort of a round recap in this second round. Bildad basically tells Job, Job, you're unrighteous and you're wicked and you don't even know your God. You don't even know your God. Lastly, in round two from Zophar, we're not even going to consider round three. These couple of rounds give us enough of a view of the message of these three guys. Zophar, in round two in chapter 20, says, The heavens will reveal your iniquity, Job, and the earth will rise up against you. The possessions of your house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him, by God. Because guess what, Job? God gives people their due. That's the refrain. That's the, the, the chorus, maybe, from these guys over and over again. God gives people their due. These three guys pummel Job for three rounds. Those are just some recaps from two rounds. And after the third round, actually just shy of the third round ending, a guy jumps out of the stands wearing his Street clothes named Elihu, a young guy, a young kid. He grabs the folding chair, he breaks it over Job's back, and he starts pummeling him, beating him with these notions. In chapter 37, he develops the picture of God being a God that's a storm, that you can't know this God. You can't approach this God. You can't interact with this God. This God is a storm. And he says in chapter 37, verse 22, he says, The Almighty, we cannot find him. Man, add to the message from the other guys. That God gives people their due. What Elihu, this guy in his street clothes, has to add. God can't even be known. So Job, you need to just give it up. You need to quit calling out. You need to quit crying out. You need to quit complaining. You need to just own whatever sin that has caused this situation. Because God gives people their due. And this is clearly happening to you because you've done something sinful. This is your nature and this is the nature of God. He gives people their due. Well, then something strange happens in chapter 38. 
chapter 38, this God that's supposedly unknowable, this storm that really has no time for us, that's really just this torrential whirlwind, actually speaks. In chapter 38, for four chapters, chapters 38 through 41, this God, this unknowable God that has no time for moths and maggots and worms, actually gives Job tons of time. He gives him tons of time and tons of words. This four chapters he, sp- he speaks is not a word to these friends, these, these friends who supposedly know God so well. Not a word to them, but four chapters to this suffering man named Job. Four chapters of the finest poetry in our Bibles. Chapters that are full of creation imagery. In these words, in these chapters, this good father with his son says, I'm reminding you that you weren't there at creation like the sons of God were, but I'm going to tell you about it so much so that you'll actually become part of it. I'm going to invite you into the story, Job. This creation language invited this supposed derelict into what only the sons of God had witnessed. And, And then Job, having finally heard from the Lord, Sort of this punchline of the whole story in chapter 42, verse 6, for actually verses 5 and 6. This supposedly unknowable God having spoken. And this supposedly guilty person having been crushed by this point. Having heard from the Lord finally, Job responds in chapter 42, verses 5 and 6. And he says, you know what, God, I'm going to tell you this. I loathe my life. I officially loathe what is happening to me. I'm covered in boils. I've lost everything. I've lost everything that's dear to me. Everything that I own, everything that I care about has been stripped from me. I loathe my life, but I am finally comforted. Remember last week or a week before last when we were looking at this passage, considering what that verse 6 says. He says, it says, I repent, but the word down at the bottom of the page is very fittingly, very appropriately translated, I am comforted. I'd heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. I'm sitting here covered in boils, scraping potsherds, having lost everything, but I'm comforted because I've finally seen your face. I've been teaching Bible um, to various, uh, in various settings for probably 20 years now, and I would say that maybe among the top three or four memorable teaching moments that I've ever experienced in that 20 years happened this last year in that little building right over there teaching the youth. And it was on the Wednesday night that we got to this point teaching the youth where our youth, which are remarkable, by the way, a remarkable bunch of young men and women. Our youth got to this point and they said, hey, uh, Pastor Ben, it, it almost seems like the book could end at this point because Job got the carrot. Job experienced the cream. He hadn't gotten his stuff back. He hadn't gotten his health back. He's sitting there covered in boils. He's sitting there suffering, but he got the good stuff. And a room full of youth recognized that God is the carrot himself, that he is himself the cream. The book could indeed end right there and be wonderful. But you know it doesn't. It doesn't. There's some things that need to happen after this. And they happen beginning in verse 7. We're going to look at verses 7 through 9 so briefly. But so I think it's going to be the the investment that we've made this morning is hopefully going to bring this thing full circle. Verses 7 through 9. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right. 
as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you've not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Do you like resolution in a story? Do you like when, when something actually comes full circle the way you hope it should in a story? Do you like when the bad guys get thrown into jail? Do you like when the bad guys, you're in the courtroom where you hear the gavel drop and you hear guilty, condemned to death by electrocution or whatever? There's something in you go, yes, justice. I like it when the bad guys get their due. And I like it when the good guys get the girl and the medal and the money maybe if there's some story where all those things are involved. Do you like that sort of resolution in a story? If you like that resolution in a story, then you've got to like what's unfolding right here, right? Something in you is going, ah, I'm so glad the bad guys are going to get their due and the good guys are going to get their due. Mm, That's something about that really feels satisfying. So let's just consider, consider for a moment the context. Let's consider for a moment what is actually happening in this passage. This God who's been silent for 37 chapters, except for the first two where he's spoken in the, in the high court of heaven. He's been silent as Job is crying out. This God now has spoken in chapters 38 through 41. Okay, I'm just imagining what this must have been like for Eliphaz. Remember, Eliphaz is the one that said, God's got no time for you. Remember the, the, the spooky ghost? He doesn't put trust even in his own angels. He, he's... Critical, even his own angels. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay? He's got no time for you. Imagine what this must have been like for Eliphaz. For they're in earshot. In chapter 42, where he begins speaking to Eliphaz, they've been in earshot as now God has been speaking to Job for four chapters. They heard what was said. Imagine what this must have been like for them. They're thinking maybe at first that, okay, now God's really going to crush him. We've been saying this God's going to crush him like a moth and a maggot and a worm because he's guilty, obviously. Bad things happen to bad people, and all this terrible stuff is happening to him, so he must be wicked. God's going to do what he does. So now he starts speaking. They must have thought at first, ah, here it comes. But then in what unfolds for the next four chapters, it must have been really confusing. For these guys that have a clear impression about God, we've heard it already this morning. They must have gone, wait a second. This unknowable God that doesn't have time for the likes of us seems to have some time for Job. He seems to be speaking to him in creation language. He's speaking to him strongly, yes, but he seems to be speaking to him like a father has a son that he loves that he wants to equip with something important. He seems to be inviting him into his presence through the creation story. Man, it must have been confusing for Eliphaz. And then it must have been terrifying for Eliphaz as God's language then turned in his direction. He spends four chapters talking to Job, and then he turns to Eliphaz, and he aims one simple sentence at this guy. Man, it must have been terrifying. Can you imagine God turns to him and says, my anger burns against you. 
You're the spokesman. You're the representative. You're the oldest. You should have known better. My anger burns against you and your two friends, for you've not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. Eliphaz, Bildad, Elihu, Zophar, you've got me all wrong. Man. Turns out, Bildad, it's not Job that didn't know God. It's you that didn't know God. Man, something in you going, ah, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. He's going to crush him like a bug. If there's something in you that really is enjoying that, then you've got the same view of God that these guys had of God. Man, just imagine what these guys are thinking at this moment. Their view of God hasn't changed other than hearing what God said to them. Maybe decades old understanding of who God is, this God that just gives people their due. They're sitting there realizing, we're wicked and due. We're guilty. We got God wrong. What's God going to do to us? He's going to do what he does to moths, worms, and maggots. He's going to crush us. We're ruined. Man, they must have just been devastated. They sit there guilty, facing the anger of God. I'm wondering if there might have been some things that came into their mind. Maybe they they thought to themselves, oh, dear God, we've traded the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They may have thought to themselves, man, we, the three of us, Elihu with us, are dead in our trespasses and sins. And we are by nature children of wrath. Do the wrath of an angry God. They may have thought, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I am ruined. Man, I'm just imagining what these guys would have thought. How did we get God so Wrong. How in the world did we get this God so wrong as we're representing him as a God who just gives everyone their due? Man. Eliphaz, up to this moment, up to those moments hearing God speak to Job and then turn and speak to him, believed one thing about the nature of God, that God prospered the innocent and that God crushed the guilty. So what do you think he's expecting is going to happen to him in that moment? Woe is me, I am ruined. Man, what are you expecting at this moment? What do you want to happen? Can you climb into their story and sort of imagine how they must must have felt? You almost have some compassion for those guys. Getting God so wrong and they're sitting there, man, just about, we're just expecting God's going to crush them. Their God would, but not Job's God. Not our God. The words that stand out to me in this page, and they're not even in the passage, but I think they ought to be. I'd like to sort of write them right across the top of the, 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 the paragraph there. These two words say, but God. But God, our God, did something altogether different. Because our God is not a God who's just giving people their due. He's a very different God than the God people expect and the God that Eliphaz Bildad and Zophar and even Elihu represented. But God, our God, made a way for guilty friends who got it all wrong to find forgiveness. (laughs) 
What a great God. He made a way for guilty friends who got it all wrong to find forgiveness. Verse 8 says, Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. I'm not going to crush you. I'm going to give you a way out of this. And my servant Job, he's going to pray for you. And I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. Man. Turns out, our God is not a God who just gives everyone their due. If you want that God, there are plenty of those gods around in every other religion on the face of the earth. But not our God. That's not who our God is. It turns out our God is not a curmudgeon that's just looking for infractions like a grumpy building inspector just ready to smash us. Man, indeed, they had him all wrong. For he makes a way for guilty friends who got it all wrong to find forgiveness. There are two things that he introduces here that are key. It's going to require a sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. It's going to require something's got to bleed. And it's going to require a mediator. So in this case, it's going to require an ample sacrifice because the sin's grievous. It's going to require seven bulls and seven rams. And seven, oftentimes in the book of, often in our Bible, is the picture of fullness, and especially so in the book of Job. It's going to require an ample double offering, in fact, of seven bulls and seven rams. It's going to require their blood. It's going to require a righteous mediator. And his name is Job. Job will pray for you, and I will hear his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. Thank God our God isn't the God of Elihu and Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. Thank God God was misrepresented by them and our God is altogether different. This morning I sort of approached this thing backwards on purpose. I was hoping over the course of the morning that maybe, this, maybe in these last few minutes this whole thing has sort of sounded familiar to you. You've been like, wait a second, something, is, something sounds strangely familiar. And I think the key here is that this Job story is a unique and wonderful window, window into the good news that we walk in and live by. A surprise window. Because see, Job's God, this God that he got right, is our God. And this very same God who gives us the guilty a way to find forgiveness is the same God that gave three guilty friends a way to find forgiveness in that story. And we find forgiveness too in what requires an ample offering. But it's not rams and bulls. It's the ample offering of the person of Christ. And it requires a mediator who prays for our forgiveness and prays that God will not deal with us according to our folly. And then on the end of that, this whole center of this thing is a good God, a good Father that lavishes grace on us with an ample sacrifice and a righteous mediator. Job is a window into the best news this world has ever known, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me pray and we'll distribute the elements.
God, I'm so thankful for this surprise window. God, I'm so thankful that you don't deal with us according to what we're due. I'm so thankful that you are a good and gracious father. I'm so thankful that you speak from the whirlwind, that you are knowable, and that we can find you. And God, I'm so thankful for the grace that you extended, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, the same grace that we need from you every day. We love you, and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's distribute the elements.